Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have in the beach shack a legend of ocean paddling, Oscar Chalopsky. Now he comes in, talks about growing up in South Africa. We talk about some myths and also him winning multiple ocean ski paddles, including 12 Molokais, and also going to the Olympic Games, meeting Nelson Mandela, and now in the toughest time of his life, dealing and trying to beat cancer and he also has a book out. Now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Oscar. Now this week on Life's a Beach, in the beach shack, it's a pleasure to have a legend of ocean paddling. He's done so much in his uh, career. I can't wait to hear about it and chat to him. So welcome, Oscar Jalopsky, mate. How are you? Thank you very much, Hopper. Thank you. And uh, it's nice in the afternoon. It's very early here today. The sun's just coming up in Cape Town, South Africa. The wind's blowing 35 to 40 knots as we speak. Oh, it could be perfect downwinders, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, let's start back, mate, when you're a young guy and growing up in South Africa. What was that like? Yeah, it was good. I mean, my father came from Germany. He was one of the top paddlers in Germany. He came to South Africa, immigrated after the war. So, um, And he liked paddling, but he didn't force us to paddle. And I think that's important for parents out there. He didn't say, listen, go and paddle. I was playing cricket at top level, water polo, tennis, any sport. I was doing it. And then one day when I was about 10 or 12, he said, hey, why don't you start paddling? And I said, okay, well, let's start. And that's how it all started. He never forced me. So I was always a nipper. So I've gone through the whole life saving uh, through the nippers and juniors and, and seniors. So, cause I think that's one of the best sports in the world is, is, uh, is life saving, helping other people. And, and basically I spent my whole life trying to save other people. So when I was even eight years old, I was already a lifeguard. I'm doing my duty. Cause in those days you had to do a du- duties. It wasn't just all sport. It was about saving lives on Durban beachfront. And I was a pro lifeguard, so I really enjoyed the beach, the beaches where I lived, and I could spend eight to ten hours a day on the beach. You know, you dropped off. We lived in a place called Westville, which is about 15 to 20 kilometers inland from the beach, and my parents would drop us over there at 5.30 and pick us up at 5.30 the afternoon. And, and you know, in the life-saving clubs, it was snooker, ping-pong, and obviously bodyboarding, and, and and that's what how life grew, how we grew up. And you, and you had basically half a loaf of bread at lunchtime. That was it. With a bit <laughs> of salami and cheese, you know. <laughs> and then uh, all the bad things that you're not supposed to eat anymore. And, and that's how we grew up, you know. So, and we, I'm a, I'm the oldest of four kids. My brother Herman also a paddler. My Walter who lives in Perth also a paddler who happens to be in South Africa now. And my sister also paddled. So we all paddled, but nobody was pushed to paddle. My father just said one thing. If you're going to do anything, just do it properly from German position. So that's how it all happened in, in South Africa. 
we we weren't in uh, we weren't in the, the the super wealthy, but we were very happy, and we lived in a house, big house with lots of canoes around, you know. And we made canoes. So we, my nickname when I was young was Fiberglass because we made our own surskis. We made our own surskis. So we basically started the long distance surski or ocean paddling surski started in the garage at my house with Tony Scott and my father designing the first ever long-distance surf skis because the spec skis were around, uh, but the long-distance surf ski started sort of in the garage, you know, so we used spec skis to do long-distance races, and then, and so I was, my name was Fiberglass because I was always in there. <laughs> well, mate, you talked about surf life saving there. You had some success there. When did that come about in, you know, the Ironman racing? Yeah, so I, I was specialised in Ironman. I was I was very fortunate. I was like six foot four when I was like twelve years old. So I never lost many races you know, and until you lose one, and you realise how can I get beaten? I mean, gee, what happened? Yeah, because, you know, you get lazy and complacent, and that's what happens. It shows you that some people are more determined than you. And then, and I think the the time I got beaten and as as a as a nipper, I eventually realised, hey. You've got to actually train. And my father said, okay, let's start training. And then I trained very hard. And, and my success happened when I won junior and senior Ironman at uh, the Natal Championships, which had never been done in the history of the sport. And then I went on to win junior and senior Ironman in South African Championships, which happens to be one month before the Australian Championships. <laughs> and it was most interesting. As I, as I said, I, I grew up in Westville. I was sitting there. And, and I... As you know, our sport in South Africa is not as big as in Australia, so it's a bit of a Cinderella sport. Yes, I might have made a few front pages of the first time in history, but I was sitting there in my in my lounge in Westville and watching TV. And in those days, in the 1976, 77, we only had one TV station. We just got our TV, and then the newsreader came up and said, you won't believe what's happened in Australia. This guy, Grant Canny from Australia, just won a junior show. I said, hey, listen, don't you realize I've actually done that already? <laughs> It was interesting that it took us more than nearly five years for me to compete against because we had apartheid. They wouldn't let me go, even go to Australia, and they wouldn't let him come to South Africa. So, But the joke is, I'm sure Grant Kenny never even heard of this guy, Oscar Chilovsky, and he was like doing all his famous things and, and getting sponsors, and he was a pilot, and he, I just hear all these rumors, and I, and I wanted to race against this guy, but... I couldn't, so I carried on life-saving, and I loved my life-saving. As I say, especially, obviously, paddling was a big part, but I was fairly fast at swimming and board, so I won, I think I won four junior Ironmans in a row, and then I won four ski junior ski races in a row, and then something that I've, not many people have done, I actually won the junior and senior Victor Adora Moose, so I won all the junior events and all the senior events. So on a day... On a life saving SA Champs life saving day, I would do about forty events. <laughs> so I was in water from six thirty in the morning to six thirty in the evening, twelve hours, and I'd go around forty events. Obviously, some of it's march past R and R. I used to do junior senior R and junior senior swim, junior senior board, junior senior every single race. The only races I never did was uh, flags and beach sprint, but I did every single event. That's unbelievable. That's that's. Uh... Jeez, it's a big day and the events going around. You probably won every single one anyway, did you? <laughs> I, had a, I had a stage where I, 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 I never forget because the program was always set 
And I think uh, out of the out of the top first 15 races, I was in every single one, and I didn't come out of the top three in every single one, and I probably won 10. So I won lots of races, you know. So, so again, at that stage, I was really determined, and I trained probably harder than everybody. And I had a – I was physically better than most people in, in the whole of, of, of South African life-saving. So very fortunate, and I had really good uh, instructors, and, and that's what you need in life, you know. So my, my coaches and my guys were – Top blokes had been to Australia, raced in Australia uh, before apartheid came, and the so the, basically the curtain came down on on life saving, so we couldn't compete. So I, I competed my first, I made my first national team for South African senior team when I was fifteen, just turned fifteen, and I, I, I made it as a senior. There were two juniors in the team, like they used to do. I don't know if you, in those days there, there were two juniors, but I was in the senior team as the senior paddler and Ironman. So that's happened. And I went to Huntington Beach and we raced against Americans and I won the Ironman there in America. So, but the whole thing was, when am I going to race against these Aussies and especially Grand Kenny? Yeah, yeah. And did you ever get the opportunity to race Grand Kenny? Never, ever, ever. The only time I got the opportunity is when I, w- I went, as they said, there's a big race in 1983 and ever again, April 1983. They said, listen, Grant Kenny is coming to Hawaii to do this Ironman. So I started training and then I was listening to Bad and we flew over to Hawaii, beautiful 1983 April. And then when I get there, there's no Grant Kenny. The race happened and funny enough, my brother won it. I think I came second. That <laughs> was basically a South African competition where we all went there and nobody else was there and a few Hawaiians, which they weren't that strong at the time. So when I was there, they told me, oh, no, no, there's a big race here called the Molokai to Oahu Challenge, and it's going to happen in October. And this guy, Grant Kenny, has won it four years in a row. I said, oh, that's interesting. And again, that's what happens in life. I had to make a big decision. I was doing a rugby scholarship because uh, I also played for, for state rugby, and I was training to be a CPA or CA, whatever you call it in Australia. And I had to make a decision. I was lying. I was sitting in Waikiki Beach, and they said, "Okay, October. He's definitely going to be doing this race. He's won it four years in a row. It's sort of the world championships of uh, surf ski paddling or ocean paddling." And I said, "Okay, let's make a decision." And again, a lot of people make decisions financially. I made it because it's fun, and I think most people should be doing it because it's fun. And the fun part is, it's magnificent in Hawaii. The beautiful white beaches, magnificent downwinds. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to do it." I didn't have any money to fly back to South Africa, so I actually had to find a place to stay. And I stayed with a guy, Bob Tugut, and I started training. I flew my boat out that I made, which was at that start stage called a Chalupski, which I'd made myself when I was about 15 or 14. Got the boat flowed out and trained like crazy. And the interesting thing, all the Hawaiians used to say, no, no, Grand Kenny. Every time I did a race in Hawaii, there's no Grand Kenny beat us. Moved by further, by far. And I said, oh, okay, we'll see. And I kept on training really hard. And then I also even saw a video of Grant Kenny. And it was like the documentary on the Molokai. And it showed him filling up his airplanes and things. I think he was getting so jealous. And they are sleeping on the floor with Bob Tugood. So he did arrive in 1983. And, and again, we started at Taliana Port in Molokai. And it's, it's the same old thing is that you fly over there. And I didn't even know anything. I never even met this guy he doesn't even know who i am and doesn't realize i hate him already with a passion but he didn't even know me and i've met him basically on the start line and i was looking oh there's a little bit shorter he's like three months younger than me and we get on the start line and i don't even know where monica is but like 
anybody should do is I followed him because he'd won it four years in a row. I followed him till I could see a Wahoo cocoa head point and took off. And I think the first race, uh, I broke the record by a long way, like 15 minutes, and I beat him by 12 minutes. And that was the start of a good friendship, a sort of big rivalry and a good friendship. And and, and I carried on going back to that race uh, seven years in a row. So I won it seven years in a row. He came second and third, and Tank Bennett came around, another guy, Marshall Rosa, came around. And then in 1990, they eventually said, no, they – the American Olympic Committee said, no, 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 Oscar, we know that you train in South Africa, we're banning you. So no matter what life-saving guys, because it fell, fell under life-saving, said, no way, you can't race. So you're out. So I was banned. So that I had seven years in a row, and in my prime, they said, no, you, you can't race this race, you South African, even though I had a German passport. And then you again, you have to make decisions in life. And I said, okay, well, what next? So you won the seven, then you got banned, and then... Did you come back and eventually do the Molokai after that ban? How did the ban get lifted? Well, first I decided and I was working because, again, I wasn't a full-time athlete. I had to actually train and, and, and uh, work and, and make money to put my kids through school. Because, as you know, in our sport, there's not a lot of money at this stage. Before Sean Partners came around, there was nothing. So, funny enough, I decided to change tack completely and I became a golfer. So what I did is I was going to become a pro golfer because my mate Ernie Els made millions. Every time he wins a race, he wins a million dollars. I mean, we didn't even get close to that. So I took up golf and I went from 24 to a scratch in a year. So that was the first uh, thing I did. And, and, and again, it took a lot, of, a lot of practice. I was up at 4 o'clock in the morning training, practicing, and then going to work, working, working in the insurance industry, and then – investment industry and then coming back and training and like I used to go crazy but I achieved that goal then in 1991 Nelson Mandela was released from prison so that's when everything started changing so the, the curtain basically the curtain of, of apartheid was lifted and I could actually compete and then the first thing I decided to compete was in the Olympics in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona so that's how it lifted and then I decided okay I'm going to come back so I came back to the Molokai Won a few, lost a week, came and went because I was always busy uh, working and racing and doing lots of things. I, I, I didn't go carry on like seven in a row. I, I went and I won and, and i never forget we were going for our 10th. Dean Gardner, uh, Nathan Bagley and Nathan Bagley sat, sat there and said, hey, I'm going to beat the record. I'm going to beat you and all this. And he said, and I find out that year I was actually sponsored by Ernie Else Wines. And I never forget him sitting there and saying, oh, I'm going to beat you, ask you easy. And obviously he's 10 years of, yeah, more than 10 or 15 years younger than me. And he's, he was winning gold medals and silver medals at the Olympics. So he was fairly good. And I never forgot when I overtook him, I said, hey, Nathan, you're padding so well, just keep it up. And I beat, I beat him into second place for my 10th. <laughs> yeah, and I've always had a passion for going back and, and, and competing. And then obviously the, I think one of the, Biggest wins at age 49, I said, I'm going to go back and win at age 49, which is like I always, I'm always laughing when they say, Djokovic, she's 37, you can't believe it. And, 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 and Nadal's this age, and, and I just saw Ronaldo's 38 or 39 today. I'm race, competing against guys that are really fast, and I was 49. But again, you made, made huge sacrifices to train. I mean, I always, when leading up to the Malachi, I always lose about 20 to 25 kilograms do special diets, do everything 
very cleverly because I can't even do one pull-up. And I can tell you, Tim Robinson can do thousands and uh, all the other guys I race can do thousands. I can't even do one. So I'm going to use this, the yeah. brain, as opposed to the, the, the brawn, you know, so which I had when I was young, but then you have to use your brains, you know, and that's where I'm very different. I, I really analyze how to do it, how to do a better technique to get better without having so much power like, like a youngster. I mean, and on, on my 2012, at the age of 49, I was racing against Clint Robinson, who won two in a row. So he's going for his three-peat, and I beat him by 15 seconds. As I said, he's like 10 or 12 years younger, and he can do pull-ups, he can do everything. He's fast. But again, I just used my brains to to beat him, you know, and, and obviously he was shattered. He couldn't believe it. So, But these things happen, you know, and I was – Lucky, and uh, in that the weather was playing a ball, there was wind, so obviously more skill needed. But that's what happens in life. You've got to take your opportunities and try and make it. And you do chase the runs exceptional. Where did you learn the skill? Was it South Africa? Because, as you said, and, and I've paddled pretty much most of my life, it's a skill to catch those runs. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's, it's funny the the divide between the good and the bad is such a big uh, sort of sort of such a big gap. Is that I mean I just I, I came out of hospital. I hadn't paddled for three weeks. I hadn't done one bit of exercise. I was completely weak. I could I could only do then maybe three or four push ups. That's it because that's all I could do. And I jumped in the water and and on the Miller's Run down here in Cape Town with a nice wind because I wanted to show people. I said, listen, the sport is not about power. It's about skill, and people don't do enough training in this for, for downwind paddling. And off I went, and I did an average exactly of 15 kilometers an hour. So I did 46 minutes for 12 kilometers. And I just showed people you don't need no power, but you need serious skill. And you see, what happens to people is that, and listen, I, when I started paddling when I was very young, and I just loved downwind. So that for me, we'd go from Durban to, to Mshlonga Rocks to Mshloti. This is just down the coast. Like you could do in, in, in the Sunshine Coast, you just go downwind all the time and it's magnificent. And I just always loved that part of it, you know. So you just hone your skills. But there's no good just paddling. And so many people just paddle. They don't do the technique. So even when I'm training for the Monaco, I do one-minute pulls downwind, one minute, see how fast I can go for one minute, then for two minutes, then for three minutes, and rest in between. So I'm always trying to do something new and learning something downwind. I don't just go and paddle downwind. I don't just go and paddle. I'm always trying to work on technique and to get better. And and, I've, and I think I've just about perfected downwind. I mean, I can't even – I can't even paddle like at six kilometers an hour and then I'll go down one at 15 and 20. I mean, I'm sure within two weeks I'll be doing the 18 or 19 kilometers an hour average downwind because of skill, not because I've trained harder. Yes, it, obviously I'll get a little bit fitter and, 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 and get better at it, but you have to practice and, and do skills. As I always come back to tennis, Roger Federer just isn't going to play tennis to be a good tennis player. He practices backhand and then he practices forehand. So I practice my downward and I practice my bracing and I practice my my, my explosiveness and, and all those things. You've got to do it in, in, in compartments. You can't just go and paddle. You're not going to improve. And I'm sure Federer just doesn't go, oh, let's play with my kids today. That's how I'm going to practice for the Australian Open, yeah, which is happening there now. So, so you have to do something different. And, and, and also you have to spend time in a boat in downward. So – my whole life, if it's flat, I'm doing technique. 
And if it's windy, I'm going downwind. So that's that, that's sort of when it comes to it. Then obviously I do all swimming and, and, and all the other things and golf and walking and all the other sports to keep sort of generally fit. Because as you get older, you've got to do more exercise, not less. 100%. Now, you mentioned you, you were making skis when you were young, the ocean skis. Now, you've seen the development over the years with paddles and skis. Which do you see as the biggest? Well, the paddles improved quite a lot. And it was interesting that uh, that paddle came out in about 1996, I think the wing paddle came out, or 86 or 96, around there, the wing paddle. And I was, again, first adopter, working out how it all worked and all that, you know. And so I got the wing paddle, which really made a good difference, you know, because the flat paddle used to flutter. So it used to go, when you paddle a flat paddle, if you paddle it now, you won't believe it. Think, gee, how did I paddle with this? Because it just didn't grip the water where the wing paddle really made a, a, a big difference. So that increased your speed between 5 and 6%. Having said that, that my record time in 1983 in the Monarch was, it st- stood, I mean, I think Dean beat it by one second, but it stood for basically 35 years with a flat paddle and my own design boat so we say that it's really improved a lot but again there's, there's a whole thing is that the engine is an important part of this whole uh, whole thing you see I think what has happened with the, with the surf skis as well they've become more comfortable I pride myself on all the boats I designed that I'm more, much more comfortable in the beginning my knees were further up they were single they were, they were, they were only specifically made custom built skis like you'd have some of the spec skis where we made it adjustable and you could change it and much more comfortable seats more stable that's something I brought in in, in 2000 2002 when I started Epic I made a more stable surf ski so that's what made the sport grow because before then the, the boats were like K1s in the surf. I mean, half the people couldn't sit on it. I mean, you sometimes people get into, into and I was racing the, the, my own made ski and then, then eventually went to a fin. But because a fin seat was so narrow, I used to put this much butt pads, so two or three inches, so hardly any K1 paddlers could paddle my boat in rough water. That's how unstable it was. So that didn't make the sport grow. So I think where the biggest innovation came is when when I decided to make a much more stable surf ski, like a V8 and a 520 and a Bluefin, that made the sport grow. So people could get on the boat and paddle. Because let me tell you, they got on the surf ski in those old days and they just fell out and they were like very embarrassed. Oh, how is this sport? And they gave up, you know. So so that's why the sport never boomed like uh, Santa Paddle did the right thing. You Anybody, because Sam, honestly, was so wide and so big, and off he went, you know, and he felt proud. I'm training very hard. Where Asursky wasn't like that until I developed those boats, first at Nello, I mean, first at Epic, and then at Nello. And I think that's the biggest innovation. The speed of the boats, as I say, I won my seven Molokars on a 5.6 meter, 560 boat, and then they made them longer. Uh, the fens were longer and the, the epics were longer. And then when I went to Nello, I made them shorter again. I made them again back to 5.6. You don't need the extra length. I mean, I can go as fast as anybody. In fact, my fastest paddle I did, I did 80 kilometers. Listen to this in, a, in Portugal on a short surf ski. And I did in four hours, 37 minutes, averages 17.3 kilometers an hour. And my heart rate was 120. So it's 80 kilometers. And I, and I did... I think six or seven sub three minute kilometers, not with a big uh, current, just paddling along, having fun. I mean, that's what I love doing, you know. So even when I'm in Portugal, 
it's even more convenient. I, I will go downward every single day if the wind's blowing. And I'll do 40K, so 50, because I just love it. You know? And I think, but, and I'm always on a stable surf. I mean, that uh, when I got back last week, when I did my first downward after being in hospital and on my deathbed, I used a 520, the most stablest boat out, and I'm doing 15 kilometers an hour. So it's like a bluefin or, or a V8. That's what I used. And, and I do these speeds because you don't need because once the boats are going and planing everything like not quite planing but going down a wave you don't need the extra length i mean the guys are doing foils which are this big now yeah. and they go very fast so you don't need the the extra length and i think those are the things that really made the the sport grow uh, when it came to the high end i think the paddles made a difference the light weight made a difference but there hasn't been that much innovation from when i raced in 1983. that's a good point because you hear people they watch people winning races and they think if they get on that ski they're going to go better but as you just said you're better off finding something that suits you and you'll go faster yeah because understand if you can't put the power down there's no way you can go fast because if you can't put the power down you're not going to go fast because you need that explosive power to catch a wave i mean that's the, the secret of downward paddling is that explosive and it's three strokes in fact i've got one of the drills where i said okay you do three strokes and you stop and if you're not on a run you just rest and then you do three strokes. And then obviously the guys aren't so good. It'll take six strokes. So that's those are kind of the things that I do. And and if you're doing one brace stroke, that's it. You'll not catch that wave. And I've caught that wave. I'm 100 meters ahead of you doing three. And you've done one brace stroke thinking you've got a narrow boat. And, and, I, and I, I paddle the millers and I see people like bracing. I say, what the hell? And I'm in the 520. Yeah, and I can turn around and wave. I can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, it's, uh, it's great. Now, what is the, the victory that has meant the most to you over your whole career? Is there one that stands out? Well, I mean, winning at age 49, I think, was was unbelievable. But again, you see, it's all in the different parts of your life. I mean, when I was so young and then I won the junior and senior Ironman, it was like a huge thing. It's never been done before. So it's, again, something that's it was like unheard of, you know. And, I was, and then... then as I say, that happened in Australia, but then winning junior senior vector drum, that's winning basically all the, the junior events and all the senior events, plus the Ironmans and the skis and everything. And that was special at the time. And then, you know, making the, the, the national team at age uh, 15, which is unbelievable when the next guys, they were juniors, but the next guys were like 22, 23, and there's a 15-year-old winning it. And then winning my most, first Molokai, which was like daunting. I said, this guy, Grant Kenny, is winning and he's got lots of money and he's... She, and then you go there and, and you do the training and you win, you know. So, so those, those are special. And then when I, uh, we've got a big race from Port Elizabeth, East London, which is 240 kilometers over four days. And at age 17, I did the race at 15 with my father and we came second. And, and basically my father was keeping me back at 15. This is 240 kilometers and we came second. And then the next, because it was every two years, the race was against uh, Tony Scott, who was the founder of, of Ocean's uh, surf ski paddling and, and surf ski paddling, a guy called Tony Scott, who uh, grew up in a, and he was, he's basically about 15, 16 years older than me. I admired him. He taught me everything that I knew about going down when he taught me how to build boats. And I was racing against him. And, and on, on, after three days, he was like nine minutes ahead of me. And we got one day to go. It was a 60K day. And I decided, okay, no, enough. I'm not going to let this guy beat me. And he was nine minutes ahead of me, and after 21 hours, I've been about 80 seconds. 
So I just went mad and, and won. So it was something special at 17 to beat your mentor, my hero, was something special, you know. So it all goes along. I mean, even when I wanted to become a rugby player or water polo, all little special things through your life, you know. And and, and I think uh, that's something that you've got to realize. You've got to cherish all those moments because it's not like it's not just one. I mean, going to Olympics and and sort of being in charge of the South African team is special, you know. But where we came in the Olympics was very not special. But it, I learned from it, saying, "Listen, I'm not going to." Because at that stage, Clint Robinson won Olympic gold in, in 1992, and he thrashed me. But then when it came to Monica, I thrashed him, you know. So it was like – and the difference was is that I was getting coached by all these Russians and these Hungarians and Swedish guys. And when I touched myself, I beat Clint. And, you know, so then I said there's something wrong here, you know. So, so again, it's the best race is, is always hard. But, I mean, as I say, winning 12 at anything is, is quite special over a 30-year period. So that's – that probably has to take the cake, although everything I do, I, I feel privileged that I've, that I've achieved something, you know. So it, they're all special, but some of us, maybe winning my 12th is probably the, the biggest achievement that most people could do. Yeah, mate, amazing effort. Now, someone I paddle with has given me this question, and it, it, we want to know, mate, is it an urban myth or, it's, or is it true, right? So I'm going to talk you through it. They say that you would paddle from your home to Durban Surf Club and then you'd run up the hill to play rugby for Durban University and then do it in the reverse again once the game was over and went back home. Now, is that true or is it a myth? No, no, that's that, I used to be like that. I mean, so so the reason why everything started, my father said I wanted to buy a racing bicycle. So he said, no, 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 you can't get a racing bicycle. You wouldn't have junior Ironman. So I started. So that's exactly I used to come. They used to wait for me, and I'd be finish a paddle like maybe 30, 40 k, and I sort of sand in my, my feet and I'd jump. And I was playing for Durban University at the time because I was on a scholarship, rugby scholarship. Paddle that and then run back because I mean I was in a different league. I mean those days in nineteen eighty. 382 when I was there. And in fact, 80, 1981 is when I was playing rugby. Um, rugby players used to train three times a week. I used to train three times a day. So, yes, I mean, I would I would cycle to the beach, which is 15, 20, do that, cycle back, go play rugby, then play water polo. Yeah, so I was a, I was a freak, but I loved it, you know. So I understand this, that, that it, was, it wasn't – it sounds like two people that don't know. Gee, that's what is this guy? He's crazy. No, but I, I just loved it. I loved being so fit, and, and I, I was determined to win everything I did. Everything, ping pong, tennis, doesn't matter. I, I just and I trained. I put the effort in because that's what you need to do. And mate, there was a time you met Nelson Mandela. Was is that true? Yeah, so Nelson Mandela I met because I was in charge of the this basically call it a captain, call it the spokesman for this whole whole national team going to the Olympics and met him and 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 thanked him for what he did because basically my sport in the peak in my prime, I couldn't race junior worlds. So Grant Kenny and Clint Drummond are all racing in the world championship. We couldn't do anything. Couldn't race. We had to go undercover everywhere. When we raced in Spain, it was like racing for Mechelen or or Belgium, never South Africa, because they were just bad enough. So he was a big inspiration for all sportsmen in South Africa, and, and he was the most humblest, kindest guy, you know. And again, 
I'm sorry I didn't have more photographs with him. Because I'm one of those people, I just take him for what he was, and, and he was very special. And, and I met him in, at, before the Olympics, and I had to do some talks about the rights that we had against apartheid and things like that. And then I met him at the Olympics and spent time with him, got some nice photographs with him. But again, not I didn't spend enough time. I didn't appreciate him, what he'd actually done. I would have liked to have spent more time. But, but he was a very busy man. I mean, and he basically got South Africa out of uh, something, a situation where it could have been very explosive and, and, and because of he's so kind and, and he forgave everybody and, and South Africa is where it is now. Mate, now tell us about teaching Tom Selleck. Did you teach him to paddle to do a movie? Yeah, yeah. So he, he so when I was there in 1983, uh, they were shooting uh, Magnum PR and I was a member of the Outrigger Canoe Club and he was a member there, and then he was paddling. So part of the thing was he always talked about doing the Molokai Channel, and he was on the, on the set. So and then I actually met him, taught him, and then he was so impressed. He bought a paddle from Bob Toogood, so and paid for that. And then I spent quite a bit of time trying to help him get a little bit better. So I actually taught him, and then when I won the Molokai in nineteen eighty. Four, he was there and he sort of handed out the prizes and things like that. So it was good having a, a big setup. And in and, and those days, he was huge, you know, and, and the nicest guy. And say so he's a very difficult guy. These celebrities are special. They don't, hard to meet him. And they never expect a guy so having to walk up to him and say, listen, hey, I'll teach you how to paddle. And he was in this exclusive club because I also met Cameron Diaz there at that exclusive Outrigger Canoe Club. So taught her a thing or two and explained how surf ski paddling works. So, again, I'm one of those people that I'm not too shy about introducing myself and helping other people get into my sport, which I love so much. Now, mate, we've spoken about your career, how successful you were in, in you know, your sport and from a young, young age. Then it came a time where you got diagnosed with cancer. Now, when you first got told that and you were – Super fit, trained all your life. How did that feel, and what reaction did you have? It was interesting. I was actually, I was actually doing the the WA race week, and I, and I, and I, and I, she, I was going through some serious pain. And I, you know, sportsmen, that's the biggest problem is that we can endure much more pain than most people. So I was just kind of thinking, okay, well, and I, I came to South Africa, saw a few doctors, and said, no, Oscar, you, you, you're 56, you should actually slow down. You mustn't train three times a day and you mustn't battle 80 kilometers. No, this is not good for you. Just relax. And I did. I sort of relaxed and the pain never went away. And then I came to uh, Perth and I was going to do that. And I thought, shit, this pain is just serious. I couldn't sleep. Didn't know what it was, and I went to see all the best physios in, in, in Perth, they were the rugby physios, and they said, no, no, what happens is that the reason why when you when you lie down or sit, I couldn't sit for five minutes, I couldn't go in the car for five minutes, I had to jump out. And they said, no, no, what happens is your body shrinks when it gets cold and it's pinching a nerve. I said, okay, well, that's a good explanation, but that gave me painkillers, that didn't work, so I didn't worry about painkillers. And then uh, I was gonna, I was doing the, the doctor, Jumped in and I thought, gee, this pain is so bad. I wonder if I should be paddling this. I mean, I've got nothing to prove. But the wind was howling and again, off I went. And I slowly, I mean, Dean started the race. He overtook me within one kilometer. But then I, the wind came up and I just get to it faster and faster. And the more I trained and the more things, the better I felt. And I think Dean beat me by about two minutes at the end. So I was catching everybody at speed at the end because it was a nice wind. And then that evening I flew back 
to Portugal. And then I was on the airplane, funny enough, on, on an Airmates airline, and they said, this lady said, no, no, I can solve your, your sore back problem. She said, oh, how do you do it? Because I, could, I, had to sit, I couldn't sit, so I used to stand up and sleep standing up. And she took a two-liter Coke bottle, filled it up with hot water, and then, you know, the socks that the airline gave you, put that over, and put this hot thing on your back, and that cured the pain for that whole flight. I came back. Did an MRI, and on the 25th of November 2019, so four years ago, uh, I was sitting in my lounge and I got the phone call. We found you've got a tumor on your spine. We can see it's cancerous. It's a secondary tumor, and you've got big problems. And uh, how long? And then I spoke to my mate. How long you got? Do you think six months in? And again, my wife was sitting next to me, listening on speakerphone, and she was wasn't impressed and then obviously I shed like one or two tears and realized hey what I've done in my 56 years I'm happy I've done everything let's see if this cancer can beat me and they told me okay you've got to go to place where you got the most support in South Africa I had my family and things like that so we decided okay we'll come back and it was interesting I said oh I've already booked we're coming here for summer I'm going to leave in December he said no you better go now and and I flew back Went to Krutikskir Hospital where all the Christian Barna did the first heart transplant. And half an hour before I was getting operated to take a piece of this tumor out of my spine, the person said, oh, we found out you've got multiple myeloma. I said, what, what's that? He said, no, that's bone marrow cancer. I said, oh, well, how long before I can start paneling? Because it ate all my, my, my spinal spine away and it was pushing on my spinal cord. So I... I said, no, no, if we're going to do this, we're going to do radiation on this tumor to take it so it doesn't push in the spinal cord. That'll stop the pain. So I had 10 days of that, and then I start chemo. I didn't realize how long it was, like six months of chemo every day. And again, I did things differently. I was told by one person, he said, you won't believe this chemo that you're going to get. Now I'm going to floor you, you're going to get sick, and you're not going to feel like doing anything. And this is the heart of COVID as well. So I said, okay, the one thing I know if I've got no food in my stomach, there's no way I can get sick. So I fasted three or four days before every chemo session, finished that chemo session, and went straight and had a beautiful meal with wine. And the people said, are you crazy? I said, yeah, well, it didn't affect me one single bit. And again, it's the mental and it's something just thinking differently. So it was tough. I mean, uh, and, and then doing the, the transplant and then doing this whole thing through no support because it was middle of COVID. So I was like the only person on the streets going to have my chemo every week. Again, it didn't affect me, so it wasn't a big deal. But eventually start learning about, oh, the longest you can actually live. So the six months went, went away, and then they said, okay, well, the longest you can live, you can live for three years. I said, oh, okay, well, there are three years. There's no cure for mother. And I've slowly sort of just made it go further and further and further. There's still no cure. They're getting better at the, the treatment, so, so they're still not here. So, but I never let cancer sort of get in my way, and I just kept on training, doing all the things. So you have to be fit to fight this, this cancer, you know? and especially mine is, let's say, it's a bit more difficult than most cancers because there's, there's no cure. I mean, like brain cancer sounds very bad, but if you eat correctly and everything, brain cancers and brain tumors are pretty easy to, to cure because most cancers, well, I thought most like 80% were metabolic, but then subsequently in the last three or four months, I found that every cancer is metabolic. So fasting and starving them, you can sort of cure it yourself with the help of modern medicine and alternative medicine.
But as I say, it is a shock when you, you've got this sort of a diagnosis where you say, huh, you, you're not going to reach 80, you're not going to, my almost 86, you're not going to get there unless you're the world's best. So you, you find the fasting is, is something that, that's really worked and obviously the, the paddling and the training that you always had growing up and, and, and throughout your life, they're the two things you think combining has really helped? Yes, it has. Because, I mean, understand this is that <clears throat> cancer is one of these diseases. If you just let it in, it'll take over. And the biggest thing is your mental strength, you know. And, and you get that mental strength from the whole life of, of pain and suffering, doing your paddling and, and exercising. You know what determination you need. And, and it's, it's, so it's number one is the mental thing. And then you've got to educate yourself. I mean, I always say is that we, one thing, we're all getting older, no matter how clever we think we are we're getting older and older and older but the one thing we can do to improve is to get smarter and smarter and the way to do that is to educate yourself so obviously i've done a lot of research on how to beat this and one of the best things is 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 fasting and being fit because this thing comes to take you down all the time i mean only six weeks ago they were giving me i was back to stage four i mean i thought oh, i'm doing well i was couldn't understand why i couldn't train and i thought Gee, this is unbelievable it's, there's something wrong with my heart. My heart was going through the roof. And I think, what, what is going on? Then I went to a heart specialist. He did check my heart out, angiograms and all this stuff. And he said, no, you've got the best heart I've ever seen in a 60. I said, yeah, but I, I can tell you right now, there's something wrong. I co- couldn't paddle at like six kilometers an hour. My heart rate was going 160. I said, there's something wrong. And then eventually, I was lucky again that I went to see my oncologist. And I said, hey, what's going on? Then he Got, did all the bloods and he was he did it twice. He says impossible that you could even be standing. He said he says if it was me, I'd be dead. I said oh, okay, that's good. So and then I was flying I was flying to the twenty beaches race the next day. He says no, you're flying anyway, straight into hospital and then you start again. And again, it's just the determination. I mean, the doctor halfway through the treatment said, oh, it's not really working. Uh, I think you should get your family to come out from overseas and because it's not going well. And I said, what are you kidding me? And then I did a 21-day fast, so 21 days of no food to make it to really give cancer a real hiding. And then and with the medication and with alternative medicine, meaning uh, fasting, it came right. So my kappa light chains were at 1,470, and now two months later they're at 111. They've got to be at five or six, but they're coming down fast with the treatment and with fasting. And with the, as you said, the twenty-one day fasting does that mean what you just had water, or what did you have in that? Yeah, you have water, and the, and the other thing that you sort of just have super, super bone broth because the bone broth has got your micronutrients, so your potassium and your iron and all those things. Because when you're doing a, a, a water-only fast, you lose a bit of the micronutrients. You don't everything else is fine, and then obviously you lose a bit of weight. And then if you don't do exercise, you can lose a bit of muscle. But if you exercise and everything, which is quite tough when you're lying in your bed and you're feeling sorry for yourself, it's hard to exercise. But I always try to go out there and walk and then do a little bit of exercise all the time so that you don't get your muscles to it. Because the longest fast actually is 382 days. So you can do it. But again, nobody's going to make money out of doing a long fast like that or even fasting. And that's the problem with big pharma and big food don't even tell you about it. So the poor man in the street doesn't actually understand what can help him be healthier, you know. Well, that's right. The pharmaceutical companies want, you know, to pump drugs in everybody because they're making money. So, yeah, it's a, a, amazing how 
you've found that and understood on, on what to do. And, and also, though, you, you're still going to be mentally tough to do a fast for 21 days. It, that's, it's, it sounds easy where we're, we're having a chat, but I can imagine I, I go one day and it nearly kills me. So <laughs> tell us a bit about how hard that is. So again, and this is this. Everybody talks about intermittent fasting, and the guy that I follow, a guy called J, Dr. Jason Fung, he's a, he's now in America, but he was from Hong Kong, then Canada, and now America, and and he just teach because you've got to teach your body to change from from eating three times a day to eating two hours, and then once, then once every two days, and once every week. But it takes time. It's like anything. You don't become a, the best paddler overnight. You've got to just read into it you know so i mean the, the best advice i have is said miss breakfast for a week then then and then every second day miss breakfast and lunch and you say oh this is not affecting me that badly and then one day miss the whole day and then go 24 hours you know so mine our, generally our whole family eats once a day so every 24 hours we eat and then and then if, if I'm not being social, so I only eat to be social. Number one, I eat keto in very what I can, and, and I cheat with my wine because life's about living, you know. So a little bit of champagne and, and wine and not so much beer because it's got too much carbs in it. Carbs is sort of the enemy for, for cancer. So, But you've got to wean yourself into it and train yourself to do it because some people oh, I can't even do it because my blood sugars go down and I feel weak and everything. It's all that happens is that you're going to change from using carbs to using fat on your own body. So that's called ketosis. Ketosis is when you're using your own energy from your own body and not introducing it. And that's why when I raced Molokka at 49 and the reason why I don't eat anything, I don't eat and drink anything on a three-and-a-half-hour race because when I eat and drink something – my body has to start working to digest whatever I've eaten or drunk. And it's taking away from my muscles to put into my body to digest itself. And again, I only won by 10 seconds. I have to have the, the skill and the brain power to use all my energy to make my boat go forward. And that's what I've done. And the same thing with, with fasting. I mean, you've got to think and work out the better way of, of, of doing things. And, and obviously that's what I do in my sport and I, I keep on doing it. I'm always trying to reinvent myself. Same thing. I'm always reading about new things in medicine and, and, and using it, you know, practicing on myself. And, and you, they say it doesn't happen overnight. So you've got to realize it's going to be tough when you fast and get headaches and all that. Not that I had it. I've been doing it for such a long time. And I understand what you mean there because when I race, I don't eat anything either and, and I find – and I don't really drink either because I find it it affects me. I end up worse than when I'm not having anything and, and you know, I agree with what you're saying. It, it does take it out of you, I think, if you eat too much. Professor Tim Noakes did a whole study and he, and he, and he wrote a book called Waterlog where I feature in there and, and basically he said, hey, your body's so clever – It'll tell you when it's thirsty. So only drink when you're thirsty. And you hear all the people, oh, I've got to drink my two liters. And that's all absolute nonsense. I mean, your body will tell you, oh, I'm thirsty, drink some water. That's how it works. And that's how everybody, but we get told, oh, no, you must drink three liters. And people drink in their wing. Because so many people have the, the problem where they actually drink so much water that they take all the nutrients out of their body. And that's why you get the people... Uh, doing marathons, not getting dehydrated, but they overhydrated so badly that they go to hospital. Hyponatremia, I think it's called. They actually go to hospital because they 
drunk too much water and, and washed their whole system out of all nutrients. 100%. Now, after you've gone through all this and, and everything, your, your life experiences, now you decided to, to do a book. Now, tell us about the book and how it came about. Well, it was interesting that the 25th I got diagnosed and then on the 29th, I never forget, I was sitting in the, walking around the Nello factory and I was telling my friend Graham Spence, who I'd known all my life, he was a, a newspaper reporter and he went to Molokai. In fact, he took the photograph of myself and uh, Tom Selleck and he met Tom Selleck and I phoned him. I said, hey, Graham, you won't believe it. I've got uh, cancer and they've given me six months to live. He says, and he just about starts crying. He said, I can't believe it. And he says, Sweden, he says, I've got six months there. He says, I say, yeah, they've given me six months. There's been plenty of time to write a book. He says, I've got a problem. I'm on a four-month deadline. I said, no. I said, don't worry. I don't think they're going to catch me in six months. And uh, we decided then on the 29th, I said, okay, I want to write a book, but I don't want this book about an autobiography about me. I want this book to help people like we're talking here. This podcast hopefully is going to inspire a few people to start fasting or do something different or be inspired. And that's what I said. I said, I want this book every, so that's why after every chapter, I've got life lessons because we make mistakes. I'd rather tell somebody this mistake I made and you don't have to make this mistake and then you can you just improve your life. So that's what I did. I just, the book's all about how to improve your life in, in many ways. And, and I'm, and, and again, it's been fantastic. The book sold very well. And, and, and it's always people say, oh, I've got this first person who's had cancer. I've got this person who's got depression. And they get the book and they, they send me messages all day, every day to say, oh, this book's really helped me. It's one of the best books I've ever written, I've ever read. I mean, some people said, I've only read one book in my life and this is the book and I've read it two or three times because that's what it's a book. It's a book about their helping other people, which as I say, as a lifesaver, we were trying to save lives and my whole life has been trying to teach people how to get better. I never, I always forget, my wife always tells me, Oscar, why do you tell everybody how to win this race? I said, listen, I'll give, tell them everything. I'll still beat them because I'm one of those people I try and help everybody, even if it's detriment to myself. They say, why are you teaching all these people all these tricks? I said, no, because my life's about helping everybody. So so the book, and then, then I decided that a portion of my my royalties, which is not a lot because you don't make a lot of money, is that I get um, a portion goes to campaigning for cancer because the only way I can sort of beat this cancer is by getting funding for them to do research, to keep on researching. So that's why a portion of every book goes to campaigning for cancer. And yeah, it's been a, it's, it's been a, a big success. I mean, I, I'm really enjoy doing it. Everybody wants to sing, but Oscar, I want to know how you do this and how you do that. And again, I'm, and we're thinking of, I, I said, once I've uh, done more, over a hundred thousand or a million books, I'll say, okay, I'll write another one. And, and that'll be about sort of the, the intricacies, how to do what I've done, you know, more, more in depth and, and a sort of a, a guide, a more step-by-step guide. Cause I think that's what people need because they all, worried about doing this, worried about doing that, and I think that's what I'd like to do. And with the book, you can take a lot from it, though. It's not just about people with cancer. You can work yeah. it into any everyday life. No, that's the whole thing. It's, it's, a, it's I'm a normal person. I understand this, and I always tell people, I was never a Tiger Woods. I was never an older. I never had one day in my life where I just sat there and said, okay, well, today I'm just going to paddle because I've got a big income coming in. I had to work and do everything like everybody. So... My life's been about family, uh, work, training, 
and in health. So those four things are very important in life, and, and they come through the book all the way through. That that I didn't have this this uh, fancy life where I didn't have to work and I just was hitting golf balls or or swimming or, or surfing like Kelly. I mean, I had to actually work all the time. So that's why it, it resonates with everybody because I'm a normal person, even though maybe my head's a bit too strong for itself. But that's what I'm a normal person. So I wake up, I've got two arms, two legs like everybody else, so they can relate to it. I've got kids I'm trying to put to school. You've got hassles where you can't get, where I didn't have any money, you know, because I was, I was, going to the Olympics and there's no money, you know, and money shortages and these things happen. But but the, the, the sort of common denominator is there the determination to succeed at everything, you know. Family even is very important. I mean, it's so easy to become too concentrated on your sport, your family gets in and divorce or too busy trying to make money and then you forget your children and they all disappear and you've got a strange uh, family life, you know, and then always keeping support. I mean, I always say that, networking is something it's not that easy you know i've got basically in my phone here but i think eight thousand people and i'll and you if you phone me i'm gonna as you know you're, you're gonna get a reply very fast no matter who you are no matter what you are and i'll do that and i, I spend my life keeping up with all my friends around the world because it takes you never know when when you're gonna need them or when you not need them where you're gonna help them or they're going to help you. And I think that's important, but it takes effort, you know, it's, and through the book, that just shows you t- there's nothing comes easy in life. Believe me, it doesn't come easy, you know, and, and you, and there's ways of doing it. And uh, hopefully I've shown the people the ways through the book. Definitely. And it, it's called no retreat, no surrender. And it's, uh, it, you can get it anywhere. I was, I'm assuming you can buy it from uh, all different uh, bookstores and online. Yeah, Amazon, and, and I did an audio book as well. And the, the audio book, which I made different, I've got a proper person that could do all the Australian accents and the South African accents. And then after every chapter, I talk. So it gives a nice breakup, and, and at least you hear my voice in the audio book because that's, that's what I do when you're doing long trips, especially in Australia, going across from Perth to, to Sydney, that's, you, can, you can easily get through this book because <laughs> then you, can, you have to read it. Mate, Oscar, it's a, it's great having you in the beach shack. And, mate, you're, you're an inspiration not only from what you've done in sport but what you're doing now, you know, going through the, the cancer battle and, and now doing the book. And, and you're still helping, you know, millions of people at the same time. So it's well done, mate. Thank you, Upper. I mean, that's that's what life's about, helping other people. And, and, and thank you for the opportunity putting my story out there. The more people that hear about it, the more people get inspired, the more people we can help. Yeah, 100%. I think it's uh, going to help a lot of people and it'll motivate a lot of people as well. So all good. Uh, mate, now at the end of the uh, interview, I do uh, a segment called Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to throw uh, five questions at you. You can answer them however you want. It doesn't matter. Uh, the first one is, what are the best and worst purchases you've ever made? Anything that gives you uh, uh, knowledge is is uh, something that you love. So so I, I I love reading and and learning. So I'd say those the best purchases buying books and I, I never buy I always buy a nonfiction. So I love uh, reading and and the worst purchases you know sometimes you always think oh I want this fancy car or thing and then you realize once you're in that it's a materialistic thing. It's a it's an absolute waste of time. You know I'd rather have I'd rather have something that that uh, is that I'm going to enjoy for the rest of my life than just have this 
getting in a Porsche 911, it's fun. For one or two times, they realize I'm in the traffic, I'm going the same speed as the guy in a, in a, in a Toyota, uh, you know, so that's, that's probably the worst purchases. Mate, cats or dogs and why? Well, I've always uh, had lots of animals, like lots of cats and lots of dogs, but I think I prefer dogs because they, they, they're far more loyal than cats, you know. But having said that, cats are much easier to look after, but dogs are loyal, and I think that's what has been one of my downsides And you read in the book is that I'm too loyal, and, and I think dogs can also be too loyal, and they, they're fun. So I love dogs because of the, the loyalty, and, and they, they look at you, whether you're fat, thin, whatever, they're always going to love you. Right. What are you most proud of? Well, I think the most... I'm most proud of the way I've sort of helped people throughout my life, whether it's teaching them how to play water polo or anything. My life is about teaching people and trying to make their lives better through the skill and knowledge that I've got uh, to help them, yeah. Right. Uh, what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? This week, the most interesting thing. That's a good one. What has happened uh well, I, 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 it's been very interesting watching the strangest thing, watching golf and this guy, Nick Dunlop, who shot 60s, the first amateur in 90 years to nearly, I don't know if he won because I actually was sleeping. So he was winning the, the first PGA the first time in 90 years. So he broke so many records. And that to me, that's interesting because he has a young guy, 20 years old, amateur and leading a PGA event in America. So that is very interesting and exciting in all. Mate, uh, the last question is: What song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? <laughs> it's 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 always the same old one by by Neil Diamond. Was it Crackling? Is it Crackling Road? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's uh, a good one. Yeah, everybody. I mean, you know, so everybody loves singing that, and and that's one of the ones that you always have to sing along. You know, or and any of the Beatles songs. I spend my life listening to Beatles songs. Well, Oscar, mate, it's an honour having you in the Beach Shack and uh, on Life's a Beach, and I'm sure people are going to really enjoy this episode and uh, I think you'll motivate a hell of a lot of people. So thanks for coming on, mate. Only a pleasure, only a pleasure, and have a good day. And uh, we'll, Well, the night, and I'm having a good day. The sun's shining and the wind's blowing, and I want to be on the beach. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.